So welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Jane Irrigation Training Series. And today we're going to be talking about uh, what I think is uh, very important to the future of agriculture, and that is a controlled environment uh, agriculture. And um, I think it's so important because I think, uh, as we all know, we're trying to uh, grow more crop per drop. We're trying to feed more people using less inputs and less resources. And uh, I think this might potentially be a, uh, a big way or a big help in achieving that goal going forward. And why I thought it was so important to all of our audience members is that um, number one, uh, it does provide a solution. And I, I think uh, you know water issues across the world are gonna be solved by many different solutions. But I think this is one of the big contributing solutions that we're going to see. And then uh, number two, uh, we have three gentlemen today from uh, Vertical Agritech who are some of the brightest young minds that I've talked to about water and agriculture in a long time. And they're so exciting to talk to, and I'm really glad you all get a chance to uh, hear them as well, because uh, what they bring is a lot of knowledge uh, and more importantly, a lot of passion for what they're doing. And I think that's so important. So our, our first guest is uh, Ethan Morin, and uh, he, uh, he was a founder of uh, Vertical Agritech. He uh, grew up in the Central Valley. Uh, he's uh, actually an attorney as well uh, and uh, has a BA from uh, UC Santa Barbara. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of great things right there about Ethan. But uh, as I said before, uh, a, a great passion for what he's doing and uh, what's happening as far as uh, water and more sustainable growing. Uh, and then joining uh, Ethan as well is Nathan Baird. Uh, he's the Vice President of Engineering at uh, Vertical Agritech. Um, he's a real uh, mechanical mind, real engineering oriented. And uh, more importantly, uh, you can see uh, his desire to uh, share his knowledge about what they're doing uh, in a solutions oriented way that uh, I, I think is, is great. Uh, and I think you'll all enjoy that. And then finally, Ben Kaufman, uh, who's joining us from New York, um, is really interesting as well. Uh, he's been a chef, he's been a sommelier, he's done a lot of work in agriculture. We were talking yesterday and they said, you know, it's about time that we make people that are growing food as popular as the people preparing it, right? Wouldn't it be great if we knew growers and we knew them uh, like we know celebrity chefs? Because really, if you think about it, the celebrity chefs wouldn't have anything if the food wasn't there and, and, and properly grown. So uh, we talked a little bit about that. So uh, anyway, I think you guys will really enjoy the conversation today. And, uh, you know, starting off, you know, I just wanted to ask Ethan right off the bat, you know, I read yesterday, um, I think it was yesterday that I saw that uh, quinoa, one of my favorite uh, seeds, right? They said, it's so five years ago, it's kind of a fad, it's gone. And then I started to think, I'm hearing a lot about controlled environment agriculture right now, but is it a fad? Is it something that's just going to be around for a while? And, uh, and, 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 you know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so there's been, I'll, I'll get this started here. So there's been a lot of hype around uh, controlled environment agriculture in uh, the past couple of years. There's the, you know, the Aero Farms SPAC deal that uh, fell through. Um, we definitely think that, uh, in terms of the gardener hype cycle, we might be headed or into the trough of disillusionment, but that's really the best time to build. Uh, we think that that CEA is uh, more most important for developing the technologies that can be scaled, um, not just in uh, super controlled environments, but also for greenhouses and hoop houses and, and even outdoors. So some of what we'll talk about is like the machine learning aspects and 
um, the precision controls that are going to be able to be transferred from the CEA uh, industry to outdoors. But generally, I think that uh, CEA, of course, is, is not a fad. Um, it's it's going to be around for a long time, but we're, we're just kind of reaching an inflection point where there's so much money that's being poured into it. And the people who are um, setting up these vertical farms are not traditional farmers. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, that was one of the things I think that's uh, so exciting about it is it's really attracting a whole new audience to farming, right? Uh, a, a younger audience that's uh, interested in technology and using technology to uh, be more productive. Mm -hmm. That's right. So um, should I get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. So we're going to go over the CEA landscape here, and we kind of use vertical farming and CEA more or less interchangeably. Um, but the vertical farming industry is projected to be 19 billion um, by 2026. And we think that the growth and investment in this sector will be a rising tide that, that lifts all boats um, in the agriculture industry. And this is because uh, vertical farming or CEA is comprised of other key ag tech industries like the hydroponics market, for example, which by itself is projected to become an $18 billion industry um, up from 9.5 billion in 2020. So a lot of growth there. And despite you know these opinions that the CEA industry is, is headed for the trough of disillusionment, um, like I said, I think we, we think that this is the best time to build. The government is, is uh, governments are supporting and uh, generally supporting CEA. And there's potential for, for new concepts to emerge in terms of landscaping or installations in high-end homes or businesses. Uh, you could, you've seen grow walls and that type of thing. And then also like city beautification and uh, uh, reconsideration of what um, green spaces are. And something that I think we'll talk about at the end, Nathan will talk about is who are the modern farmers? Kind of like you mentioned, Richard, is like, um, wouldn't it be cool if, if, if we could put um, farmers to the same degree as, as chefs? And something that you mentioned, Richard, yesterday that I just added in here is um, there's a change in, in the way farming is done. So you're not making a commitment to a, a large plot of land uh, for a lifetime or generations. It's a building um, that you could kind of uh, move away from or lease out and operate from a different place. So just to put some things into context here, um, drip tape or well, drip tape was developed in the 1960s and that was kind of in response to regulations. And so I'll, I'll talk with uh, talk about how regulations are, are pushing this a little bit, but to, to frame things here that the iPhone one debuted in 2007, which was 15 years ago. So my claim is that the, the iPhone is just as important to the ag and the food industry as something like refrigerated trucks were in the 1960s, uh, because agriculture is an industry with long-term investments. And this uh, these types of technologies take some time to be used in and utilized properly within the industry. But if you consider, you know, 15 years after refrigerated trucks, McDonald's began its rise to become uh, one of the most successful food chains in America. And, and that's, you know, largely because of the, the um, refrigerated trucks and kind of the technology around that time. So modern farming is, is right now only adopting and, and learning to use the iPhone and beginning to leverage technologies like Internet of Things or IoT technologies and connected devices to their full potential. And right now the focus is on gathering more information um, and with more information, farmers are going to be able to focus on the quantity, not only the quantity, but the quality of their yields 
as well in, in a lot of new ways that we'll discuss. Um, but there's still work to be done in this space uh, and in terms of being able to display all of this new data that we're collecting in ways that can produce better and more efficient and, and more sustainable food supplies. So this is uh, kind of the layout of what we're discussing. So we'll start by talking about how CA emerged and, and where the industry sits currently. And then we'll analyze the industry and devote some time to um, discussing some of the problems and the barriers for CEA to overcome. And then we'll conclude by offering some examples of opportunities that exist in this space. And we'll make some predictions about the future of CEA and where we expect the most growth. And after each of these sections, uh, we'll break and, and, and feel free to chime in with, with questions during the slides, but we, we broke it down so we can break at the end of these, um, at the end of these sections. And I just want to mention that we do have the chat and the Q&A open. So if you have questions or comments, put them in there and uh, I'll get them to the uh, panel when appropriate. All right, Ben, take it away. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining today. Um, so quickly, just briefly, uh, as it was mentioned before, I used to be a chef. So if I talk really fast and I cut through, just give me a heads up on it. I like to be efficient and fast. Uh, so lead up to CEA, how do we get to the point that we are now? And it's very important when you look at this, uh, it, we're really talking about the past 100 years in agriculture, when we're talking about this aggressive change of how we viewed agriculture and sustaining humankind. Uh, in the early 1900s, leading into World War I and World War II, we had the Industrial Era, and that is where we saw the major transition shift into a different style of agriculture and more of a monoculture system. Uh, we also saw globalization on the first realistic scale at that point in the world. And it became more about how can we grow things in abundance? How can we preserve them efficiently to then ship them to other parts of the world to sustain our citizens? Um, that really changed how we treated our culture. And it wasn't until about the late 50s that we started to go back into more of the origin story of why we do what we do. Uh, in the late 50s, something called cells was being researched by NASA. It was the first real iteration of a controlled environment agriculture. It's a fully closed system. You may have heard of biodomes before. Um, and that was the real first introduction of sci-fi or science fiction into how we discuss modern agriculture. Uh, along with that, we started to see changes in the way people consumed food and asked for food. In the 80s and 90s, there was a huge health shift along with a much more outspoken younger generation that wanted to be heard. Uh, and we saw consumerism starting to change with that as well. And that started going more towards uh, cultural integration on a global scale. Um, you know, having exotic or ethnic foods, uh, especially in the American market became popular again. Uh, you know, being health oriented and IE with health, we're talking about fresh produce, uh, greens, um more vegetable focused diet again uh along with abundance of yes still meat uh the way we treated our culture started to change even more at and then we find in 1999 2000 there was a columbia university experiment done by a bunch of students to see if they could feed new york city using only rooftop gardens uh unfortunately they found that it could barely feed about two percent of new york city population at that time of rooftop gardens. Uh, the professor at the time put forth a proposition of why don't we move it into these abandoned buildings in New York City, which is where I grew up. It's something I grew up around. 
the idea of urban gardens first started in the 80s uh, in the neighborhood that I spent most of my life, uh, Alphabet City of Lower East Side. Um, and that's where we've got the first term uh, of vertical agriculture and modern agriculture. Uh, at that time, sci-fi was still a major component of it. We didn't really see the application of developing modern technology to bring feasibility to these concepts of new agriculture. Um, and then heading into the 2000s, we start to see now at a rapid scale, uh, technology integration becoming possible and being talked about. We see a path to feasibility for these sustainable and holistic styles of agriculture existing now. And we've really seen in the past 20 years, a huge shift towards trying to make that happen. But as we mentioned before, we are plateauing slightly where we still see it as tech has certain limits and we need to be science fiction based about it rather than practical about it. And the practicality is how do we integrate this to make efficiencies in outdoor growth while taking advantage of urban agriculture at the same time. Uh, so, a couple of questions here I just wanted to ask. So one, um, one of the things that is concerning, right, is that, well, as you mentioned, it could feed maybe 2% in New York City. A lot of people think this is on such a small scale that it's hard to imagine it making a real impact on food. Yeah, so, I mean, there's been a lot of development in that. And, you know, one of the first steps was in that experiment alone, where they said, stop looking at just rooftops, look at the true acreage that we have in vertical architecture. So, you know, in New York at that time, we had a massive amount of empty space, warehouse space. And that was the initial answer towards it was, why don't we fill those? And you see around the world, you see in Paris, they filled old subway stations and the basements of projects with controlled environment agriculture. Uh, in London, most of the top tier restaurants are served by an underground farm. Um, and we have that throughout the US as well. But even more so, it's what CA offers for the efficiency and the output of outdoor agriculture as well. And that's something that we get trapped in indoor agriculture when we talk about CEAs. We don't often talk about the crossover into commercial and uh, traditional agriculture uh, with this impact that CEAs can have on that. And then another thing that uh, people wonder, right, is they think maybe that CEA is just camouflage for growing cannabis indoors, but it sounds like it's a lot more than that. Yes, it's much more than that. Uh, you know, I mean, as we'll talk about a bit in, with my personal history with the CA business models, uh, you know, I, I went to Cook College. I wanted to be a conservation biologist. I wanted to do ethology for my entire life. Um, and a lot of the research that's led up to the agriculture we have now is about sustainability and how we can be the prime species on the planet, but coexist with a pre-existing ecosystem. Uh, CEAs are really that path forward to finding that eco-balance. Um, so it's much more than just hype crops, uh, which, you know, uh, cannabis is making a lot of money for everyone. It's really bringing a lot of attention to agriculture, and that's an amazing thing. And in hemp, there is a lot of uses for hemp byproducts. Uh, but CA is much more than that. It's, it's involving all agriculture and commercial agriculture, especially. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So as I was just saying before, uh, with those wonderful questions. So with farming, um, I actually got into farming because I worked at a farm in high school and I worked in Kansas 
on a monoculture uh, farm that focused on purely corn pretty much and uh, livestock as well. And that was the first time that I ever saw uh, cycle grazing uh, and the concept of large scale cycle farming first came to me. Um, and you know, a lot of challenges for farmers is impact of sales uh, in comparison to acreage. And you know, margins are tight. So with having something that allows efficiencies for a polyculture growth system on a farm, multiple vegetables, herbs, mushrooms, having growth and product to sell year round, farmers are gonna see a much more efficient margin in COGS uh, with this business model, along with um, use for possible acreage that's being turned over. You know, cover crops, there's been a slow transition, unfortunately, to profitable cover crops. Uh, CEA offers an amazing opportunity to rapidly regenerate your soil um, with low acreage impact and also have profitable crop at the same time. And that is driven by the hardware and the software. So within the hardware, there's a lot of components, uh, single components that are useful on their own and useful together as well. Uh, this offers, again, in a CA business model, an opportunity for a farmer to have another revenue stream. Uh, the scientists and the engineers and technicians behind the development of this hardware need farmers' input to really make this practical and feasible on a large scale. This offers an opportunity for farmers to then earn another wage on being consultants on the development of this hardware. Uh, along with the software as well, software is another language for a lot of us in the agricultural realm. It's something hard to transition to. And that's gonna be a major part about this is the user experience for agriculturalists. So having the software developed where generational farmers can easily transition to it is gonna be an important part. And we're going to need the input of generational farmers in order to make that feasible. Along with farmers now have the possibility in their future of not being tied to their land. You can run your farm that's a thousand miles away from you with the use of remote controls, remote monitoring, and you can actually give the proper information to your consumers that it's still your handiwork and your experiential skills that are making this happen through blockchain. Um, and finally, then there is consulting. Uh, this is, again, a very unique language. We're going to need translators to make this applicable on a large scale and on a global scale rapidly. Um, so jumping into CAs now in the early stages of it only offers new career opportunities for the next generation of agriculturalists and for the current generation of agriculturalists as consultants for the transition. Um, and then within CA technologies, there is an immense amount of technology behind this and that we are working on to make it even better. Uh, it's very hard to get lost in that and we're going to pretty soon uh, get lost in that. But right now I just wanna cover sort of four key elements of it, uh, lights. So with lights, we are talking mostly about indoor agriculture. Uh, it was very high cost and so unfeasible heading into the first origins of indoor growth and indoor agriculture. Uh, now with the creation of LEDs and the understanding of light spectrums and output of that, we have a much more efficient system towards lighting and we have much better output uh, from the lighting systems that we use now. 
HVAC is going to be another very important thing. Uh, we are talking about a fully controlled environment. With that, air is a key element of it. Um, in my operations with mushrooms, uh, my father and I started while I was in college, uh, Shibumi Farms, which grew in the first five years, being one of the largest mushroom farm operations in America. Um, the airflow, the HVAC unit, and the O2 leveling were some of the most important elements of our fruiting chambers, which is most of the production of indoor mushroom growth. Uh, so it, we really lived and died by our airflow and our filtration and balancing of that. So that is gonna be a vital element in indoor agriculture. Uh, irrigation controls are, again, incredibly important for that. And we've made major headway on that. You're talking about, you know, right now, it is a limited item. It is going to be a limited item heading into the future. We have a limited resource with water and we need to optimize the use of it. Uh, we are often, depending on where you are, especially in California, you will be allocated your level of water for agriculture per year. And you need to make sure that you can afford that amount and that you can grow the crops you need to with that amount. Uh, using controlled and atomized irrigation systems, you're able to optimize your output with limited water resources. Uh, and finally, um, you're looking at the tech side of it, the actual control boards of it. And that's, that's really where we see the, the integration, the necessity of integration of programming and engineers within this agricultural realm. Um, you know, this is a lot of data input and data output to be done on a grand scale. Uh, you are going to need the specialties of modern tech to be able to manage that and to translate it into usable data outputs. Wow, talk about uh, opening it up right away to uh, really, uh, you're only limited uh, in opportunities here by your imagination, right? This is uh, a whole lot of uh, uh, great uh, information and, um, and uh, I'm sure you have a lot of people you know, uh, uh, thinking right now. So we, we, uh, we had those first couple questions come in, uh, but um, uh, I, I think we're ready to move to the next section now. Okay, sweet. Um, so I'll be talking about the, the state of where we are now. So um, right now the focus is on uh, uh, precision control and the transferability of knowledge between operations and then also between uh, grower and consumer. So right now, indoor farmers really want more control over their grows, but most aren't interested in uh, complete automation um, in, in the sense that farming is an art. If you look at some of the, the cannabis uh, facilities, you know, there's a lot of people still hand watering, for example. Um, so being able to just have the right monitoring to know um, that I hand water about this much and what is about this much mean so that I can replicate it and get consistent results is kind of where we're at now. But, but cannabis is really driving this and, um, you know, you're, you're going after something with uh, different with cannabis. So even when we're talking about light spectrums and the research that's going on there, which is, uh, which is a really big uh, field, um, you're, you're, trying to grow this, the, this crop for uh, the, the psycho uh, effects, as opposed to the taste or um, sometimes, you know, the appearance and crossover. Um, but this, this is the consequence of cannabis driving the industry. 
Um, the research is trending toward using a lot more machine learning to understand the effects of uh, things like organic fertigation um, and the, the light spectrums and how uh, those inputs affect the phenotypic expressions of different plants. Um, and I was just reading like there's there's cutting edge stuff like electroculture for plants where um, this Chinese group is, is saying that they are applying electric current to plants and it's increasing yield. So there's a lot of um, it's basically in the indoor farming space, a lab to understand, to better understand plants and, and plant treatments. But what we need to do right now is, is collect more accurate data that actually means something. So how does this data make the farmer money? Um, and, and you need actionable data on what that, that rate of return is. Uh, so for, for year round cycles, we're talking about as opposed to seasons. Um, but even, even in terms of, um, the revenue potential that you could generate uh, does it make more sense to uh, grow you know pumpkins year round when pumpkins really are in high demand mostly in uh, in october um, and november so um, being able to assess the the data that's going on in the market and match that up with the data that's going on in the farm is something that machine learning can help with um, and and also it can help with focusing on uh, replicating growing conditions from one from one CEA facility to another CEA facility. So there's there's a lot of focus also on automating mundane tasks that require um, some level of human intelligence, like uh, uh, harvesting and properly harvesting it, training a machine to uh, pick and, and harvest a plant um, that's a delicate plant. Maybe um, it's a baby green or something, and not have that machine crush it. Um, and and to, to be able to identify different types of plants uh, as well. So there's also um, the uh, issues with um, you know, indoor farming capitalizing on um, certain terminology that's typically used in outdoor farming, for example, organic, and there's a fight over the, the use of the term organic and whether it can be used in, in soilless operations because organic typically has to do with the quality of the soil. And then um, there's there's also attempts, uh, and this is what we're focused on as a company, is, is to more efficiently transfer knowledge about techniques and market demand, um, which is important for you know scaling this up and potentially building in uh, franchising models. So talking about a little bit of the regulations that apply, um, fortunately, the regulations uh, and, and the legal industry moves even slower um, than the farming industry does. But, but in general, these regulations are pushing us in the right direction. So we have the, the Office of uh, Urban Agriculture and uh, Innovation that um, was established by the uh, 2018 Farm Bill. And that um, office manages a competitive grants program to incentivize people to uh, become urban farmers. Uh, it's also establishing a, a federal advisory committee and the Farm Service Agency uh, uh, county committees uh, that are focused exclusively on urban agriculture and also developing policies and resources to assist people in the space. And then like in 2000, oops, sorry. And then in 2013, um, the California legislature passed a bill allowing uh, county and city to establish urban agriculture incentive zones to support local food production. Um, but the regulations that are gonna apply they are going to depend on the size. So we're we're thinking of this as a more modular approach um, because we know that you know Silicon Valley getting into this, uh, they have the kind of move fast and break things model, which doesn't really work in ag. Um, part perhaps 
you know, that's part of the reason why the Aero Farm SPAC fell through, which that, that would have valued the company at 1.2 billion. Um, but according to a census, 70% um, of farming operators agreed that CEA is susceptible to excessive greenwashing. Um, so those are some, uh, some of the regulations that apply. Uh, I know probably you're interested in, in water. Uh, there are people listening, you're probably interested in water. So um, it's in CEA, it's not, a, it's not so much a concern with, um, with the amount of water because CEA can, can typically use, you know, 70 to 98% less water than traditional ag. But it's it's what do we do with the water um, after we've we've ran it through our system? So wastewater is really the biggest um, concern in in this space. Uh, in terms of how the, the size of your operation as well, obviously, if it's a, it's a really big operation like these Bowery or, or plenty, um, there's considerations about zoning and getting the right permits and, and assessing the environmental impact that um, that people who want to replicate that will need to watch out for. Uh, what, what I think is really interesting is the food safety regulations. A lot of the food safety regulations have to do with elements of the supply chain that might be cut out by bringing farms into cities. So a lot, a lot less of the, the handling and the packaging and uh, a lot less distance um, and in terms of the transport. So um, the, the, there, there's the Food Safety Modernization Act, which is, is uh, covering this and um, the food, they're more, the regulators are more concerned uh, with what you're growing, kind of how much money you're making from produce sales and where you are in the supply chain. So there's issues um, to be resolved there. Uh, obviously, there's energy usage and, and we could talk, you know, about uh, solar and, and the potential for solar to offset some, some of these energy costs, especially when it's in the city. Um, but, and then if you're dealing with cannabis, um, there's there's specific regulations that apply. We can talk about that if anybody has questions. I'm not going to go super into it. Um, but the the really interesting thing is the transition of of the labor force from unskilled seasonal labor to um, full time employees with maybe software engineering or biology backgrounds. And this kind of provides this opportunity for the younger generation to get into farming, um, where you know talking with a lot of farmers. Um, they, and, and people, you know, my age that who have, uh, who are from generational farming families, they don't typically want to get into farming. They might want to go be, especially small farmers, like we're talking with the Hmong farmers, um, here in the central Valley and, uh, the, the, the people that are my age kind of want to go into, they don't want to go into farming. They want to go into software and engineering. Um, so it helps that the, that the regulators are pushing uh, us in the right direction in terms of grant programs and incentive programs, but uh, the industry has some work to do in being able to connect um, how if you become a software developer, you become an engineer, um, you can still work in the ag field and actually have a more productive um, farm. And then I kind of already discussed the, the labeling thing with uh, the, the, the fight over the term organic and, and stuff like that. So in terms of the barriers to adoption here, um, Obviously, farming is a long-term investment, and so the, the changes that are required um, might seem overwhelming, um, but this, this transition has been incremental, like Ben said, you know, kind of over the past um, half century um, or so. Uh, there might be some hesitancy from people uh, that are in the industry to invest in uh, the technology because it's expensive and they're not exactly sure how they're going to use it or how it, it makes them money. Um, but and, and according to uh, this the CEA census, 
Um, 49% of CEA operators had zero years of prior farming experience. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity for uh, people with generational knowledge about how to farm to get into this space and um, have an advantage. And, but um, with, in that same census, uh, they found that 73% of the respondents um, would opt to change the equipment, the technology, or the crops that they selected if they could go back in time. So the importance of um, doing your due diligence, oops, not just on, um, not just on what technology you're using, but what crops you're going to grow is really important. Um, so the hesitancy generally from the, the farming industry um, has is, is a good thing, I think, but it's, it's time to make moves at this point, especially um, with the industry uh, kind of in a, in a plateau period. Um, these are generally the best times to build. So, um, being able to understand these new business models and, and get insurance for this. I mean, the insurance should generally probably love this industry because you're not dealing with um, unforeseen weather events that can wipe out, you know, uh, acreage. Um, the the um, subsidies are, are, are uh, applicable in a lot of uh, cases that, that uh, traditional farming would be familiar with. Um, but how how do you balance the the risks that are associated um, with the benefits? So um, I wanted to give this example of, uh, or I wanted to mention that there's a lot of um, technologies that can be applied from other industries into this industry that may be more familiar um, to um, farmers, um, but they're hesitant to apply it in their operations. So uh, uh, this example is like in aeroponics technology, um, you know, atomization has been used in the medical and aerospace fields to distribute um, fine particles. Uh, that's tried and it's been tested. It just ha it hasn't really been applied in agriculture. And another example is like um, we were, my company was in the, the Valley Ventures Accelerator Program here at Fresno State. One of the other ventures in the program had created this, uh, these water pearls, um, which are a super hydrophobic bead. That's a solution from the oil and gas industry, um, but uh, applied in CEA, it reduces evaporation to prevent abiotic stress and prevent humidity from being released into the controlled environment. So these are, these are already uh, which which you know reduces costs associated with dehumidification. There's less disease. So there's there's solutions out there. The trouble is, and the barriers to adoption are feeling comfortable with how to apply them in agriculture. So that's um, the next break here. And if anybody has any questions or, or thoughts um, before we move on. Yeah, we got a couple of questions here. One, uh, one comment I wanted to make. You, you, you mentioned that a lot are new to growing, who start these uh, ventures. I know a lettuce grower up in Salinas, and he says, "I've been growing for thirty years outdoor. I'm going to take that information, that experience, and transfer it to indoor. And competitively, I'm going to have a big advantage over everybody else." Um, I think it's uh, interesting that we're seeing both. Now, you mentioned water. Um, which is a big issue for the audience. And uh, I think about a lot of these uh, uh, environment, uh, controlled environment uh, agriculture facilities are in municipal water districts. Are they paying municipal rates or do they get a special rate for water if they're growing in the city? They're, so that's determined on a city by city basis. And um, there's 
here, there's an example of, um, I think San Francisco, um, they offer a discounted water rate for urban agricultural uses. Um, so one urban farming operation in San Francisco received financial assistance from a local foundation to help subsidize the cost of hooking up to the municipal water supply. Um, but uh, that's, that's part of where I think if, a, if farmers are interested in, in doing this, um, they can go to the, the, their city um, or their county and those regulators. And um, there are incentive programs out there uh, from, the, from the federal government and from the state government that, that maybe some of these people, um, you know, that the city, the city politicians aren't necessarily aware of, but um, it's, it's on a city by city basis. Right. Okay. Well, that's interesting and, and, and uh, smart thing to check out first, right? Um, and then in a state like California, this comes in from one of our viewers, uh, where land prices uh, and especially construction costs are so high, could something like this ever replace traditional farming methods in terms of costs? Yeah, we were just talking about this. Um, uh, ben, or, ben, do you want to take, do you want to take that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a lot of ways that we could approach this. I think one of the easiest answers to make first with this is uh, when we're looking at starting a farming or even a landscaping operation, you're looking especially at investment cost over time. Uh, you can't start a farm overnight. Uh, you know, when I started in agriculture, I focused on bioremediation, regenerative agriculture, and permaculture. Uh, the current time scale to start a regenerative farm or sustainable regenerative farm is five to 10 years for real actual output. With CEAs, we're talking about really cutting that time down. You're going to be able to make profit on your seeds in the first year. You're going to be able to start selling your produce, and then you're going to be able to integrate it to your outdoor operations so you don't have to cut all your acreage, but more minimize it and optimize it uh, so that you can actually have a better profit over time. Um, so yes, I think, you know, construction costs, construction costs exist in no matter what we do in agriculture. Uh, to turn over a large acreage plot into usable land costs a lot of money. Um, to turn four acres into spin cycling controlled environment agriculture will cost about the same initially, uh, but you have much lower real estate costs, uh, much more lower real estate management costs, uh, and you have a sooner estimated time to sales of production and return on your investment. We have another question right along this line, and that is how big does my facility need to be to turn a profit? Yeah, and I see this other one about the the what's the story behind these these baby shaped uh, pears, and uh, I think that those are kind of uh, they're in the same uh, vein or same category here that that we can address. So, like, how big do the facilities need to be? You can have a a small a, a small operation that's doing something highly specialized, um, and and if you have a market to it uh, or um, a market to sell that product. Um, then uh, the, the facilities don't have to be very big to be profitable, but um, you know, it depends on what you're growing. And so this, the story behind these kind of baby shape, you know, the, the pears here um, and is, is more, it's more about um, the 
control over how you're growing. So like the way that those pears are grown is they have like these little casts or molds that the, the, um, that the fruit grows in and these sell for a lot more money than uh, a normal pear would for obvious reasons, it looks cool. It's really big in, in Asia right now um, and it has been for some time, but um, there's, there's additional ways to uh, make a uh, small facility profitable uh, depending on where you are. So for example, um, Fresno chilies in, in Fresno or in some place that, uh, you know, the data is showing that people really like Fresno chilies and they have to be, you know, uh, uh, trucked in and, or, or shipped in, um, being able to service that market and, and being able to design a facility that allows you to grow, you know, Fresno chilies, for three years and then something else for uh, after that period that, that makes more sense um, is, is some of the, the um, benefits to uh, being able to, to optimize the operations that, that we're just starting to explore. Um, and to add to that as well. So, I mean, you know, we were talking about the change in theories and methodologies behind agriculture and how tech is catch up to it now spin farming and small acreage spin farming really started to show up in the early 2000s when CEAs were first starting to be discussed as well. But you still have a major hurdle to jump with spin farming, and that's uh, the seasons and the outdoor elements. You're going to only really have maybe about two seasons of profit uh, with two seasons of just trying to minimize cost uh, while waiting for the next harvest season. With CEAs, you now have four seasons of profit uh, and the growth zones, uh, though I think they should still matter, they don't matter as much. So like when I started with my with Shibumi Farms, we were in zone seven of our culture. But with a lot of our mushroom strains, we were growing tropical strains, pink oyster mushrooms, which are from the Southern hemisphere. Uh, we were growing Mongolian king oysters, which are from a much colder atmosphere. Uh, than New Jersey, Lambertville, New Jersey. Um, so you have a lot more opportunity in the variants of the flora that you're actually investing in and selling and growing. Yeah, and so then I, one last question from our viewers and, and it has to do with, um, uh, is this all uh, soilless or are people growing indoors in soil? There's different substrates. I mean, it's typically it's typically soilless, but um, you know, there's there's problems with with bringing soil in and introducing it um, into a controlled environment, uh, contamination, and then what do you do with the soil when you're done with it? It's kind of the same um, issue with with wastewater. So typically, they are soilless, um, or you know, they're using some kind of um, uh, purpose purposeful substrate, uh, whether it's hemp or, um, or something else, jute mat or, um, you know, completely soilless, no, no substrate at all. And I will say, as far as uh, mycelium goes in CA agriculture, uh, the, we, you know, we've progressed from doing plugs in wood inoculation and in the outdoors to now substrate-based growth indoors. And that substrate is actually top-grade fertilizer after about three flushes. So you have a whole other revenue stream and you have zero waste because these mostly seed or hay-based substrate uh, formulas are then prime fertilizer for outdoor agriculture. Wow, 
That's really interesting. Pretty fascinating too. And I see a couple of uh, people are commenting too that they're growing in clay beads and uh, some in uh, fish waste nutrient water. So there's a lot of options here, right? Yep. Yeah, the absolutely stuff's very cool. Um, all right, Nathan, you're up for the next section. All right. Well, hello. My name is Nathan Barrett. I'm the Vice President of Engineering, and I'm here to talk to you. Uh, we're first going to start off with a little bit of precision control and monitoring, and that's actually going to lead us into a conversation about machine learning and hopefully take us to a spot where we talk about how that's going to affect people moving into the future. So to start off with the opportunities in um, precision monitoring and control, uh, first, uh, precision monitoring is expected to grow into a $16.35 billion industry by 2026, or 2028, sorry, <laughs> uh, with projects like Jane Logic and uh, their, their smart irrigation controls leading the way into this sector, actually. Um, so what is precision control? Uh, it's, you know, more or less, it's about being able to get feedback from your crops and to then be able to take uh, precise action on that data that you're receiving. Um, all of this is about creating value through efficiency. Um, as everybody knows, the costs of your inputs are only going up. It doesn't matter whether it's water, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's water, whether it's fertilizer, whether it's labor, everything's going up and managing these is becoming increasingly important as we move forward into the future. Um, one of the areas actually that, um, that precision monitoring is going to be able to help the, the uh, industry as a whole is actually in the area of resource management. And so the example I'd like to give you here is actually a study that was conducted by Michigan State University. And it used much of the same data that you're actually able to uh, collect from uh, the Jane Logic platform. It uses a combination of historical data, uh, satellite data, as well as in-field uh, monitoring equipment. And through this uh, evaluation, they estimated that American farmers are wasting $500 million a year over fertilizing unproductive lands. So um, this is like an obvious area where farmers are able to use this data to kind of help safeguard their investment. The other side of this is uh, in things like notifications, right? So if you have an hydroponic farm and a pump goes out, that can be the end of everything, right? But with these kinds of systems, you're gonna have feedback on that. You're gonna have flow rate sensors, you're gonna have humidity sensors, and you're gonna be able to get a notification that's gonna let you make better decisions and be ready when these sort of catastrophic things kind of happen, right? Now, um, the other side of this is uh, the, the precision controls. And this is gonna come in the form of irrigation and other technology that's being introduced into this space that's gonna allow you to take those large data sets and make really precise controls. And that actually leads me to my next topic, which is machine learning, right? So when we talk about machine learning, um, the best analogy I can give you for this one is, uh, as you can imagine, we're getting a lot of data really fast and it gets pretty easy to drown in all this data, right? You don't know what to do with it. It doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. And the best analogy I can give you is the traction control system in your car. Now, if you have an all wheel drive car, uh, roughly a thousand times per second, you're being updated with a frictional coefficient at each of the four tires. Now for your car, this is an incredibly important piece of information, right? 
for you, it doesn't mean anything and you can't do anything with it, right? And in a similar respect, that's where we're at with machine learning in plant science. So um, one of the things that we're starting to find, and this is where I like to think about um, the symbiotic relationship between um, indoor agriculture and outdoor agriculture and where these things are going to intertwine moving into the future. And one of the biggest areas is in uh, the area of plant breeding and understanding these complex systems, right? So um, there's actually a paper, uh, it was a longitudinal study that was released in iScience last year in January. And they talk about, uh, they take a uh, overview of machine learning and agriculture. And one of the things that uh, researchers are starting to be able to do is if they know the genotype of a particular seed, and they can get enough data about the environment in which that seed is operating, they're starting to be able to tell what sort of gene expression we are going to see in the real world, right? Which I don't know about you, but I find that personally just insanely fascinating, right? Um, with, uh, so, the, the reality is, though, is that a lot of this data that you're going to be collecting, you're going to be collecting all of these things, this isn't something that a person can do, right? This isn't something that a person can digest. It's not even really something a person can understand. Many of the machine learning algorithms are what are called, um, what we would like to refer to as unstructured algorithms. And they are looking for unforeseen patterns, right? That we can't make much sense out of. And you have to uh, be a computer to, uh, to do that. Um, so, here's the beauty of these whole systems and where this kind of intertwines, right? If we can take, if we know something about the genome of the plant and we can extrapolate how the environment affects those phenotypes, that also means that we can work backwards, which means that if we have a plant and we know its genome and we know in the real world how it's been expressed, that is gonna give us a lot of environmental information. And it's gonna allow us to start making better decisions about what we do with our crops in the real world, as well as in these controlled environment situations. Um, and that machine learning takes us to the next stage of this, which is who is going to be farming in the future. Um, this machine learning is gonna make it possible for us to build relatively small, flexible systems that in many ways are gonna take the guesswork out of farming and really put people in the driver's seat in a way that they never have been before. Uh, they're gonna be able to interact with their plants on a very deep level and get a, a high level of plant science understanding without having to be a biologist, you know? Um, and the thing is, is that this paradigm is going to affect everything. You know, when you start talking about changing, not only who produces food, but where you produce food, that's gonna have a drastic effect on the infrastructure across the board, you know, um, from everything from how we deliver that food to how we um, confirm that that food was produced in the manner in which we expected it to be uh, produced and how it got to your house. And that's one of the areas that we're actually gonna see um, things like blockchain become incredibly important because a farmer is not only going to be able to show that they are using this machine learning and these uh, high level, um, uh, algorithms to produce the best crops, but they're going to be able to show their consumer that they're doing this in the most environmentally and friendly way, and that there's the least amount of hands between them and their food as possible. 
Awesome. Um, so I'll just uh, finish this up here. Um, let me get back to my notes. Um, so the future here we we are thinking is an improved user experience is what Nathan just kind of touched on. So um, think about uh, internet and smartphones created new opportunities to share interesting and important and consumer relevant information. We have these social media platforms. I have this example here. Um, during COVID, there was uh, farmers in China couldn't sell their produce at markets. There was um, excess produce in, in cold storage and, and trans, uh, transportation was halted. Um, they did this guy, Brother Pomegranate, for example, um, turned to China's uh, version of TikTok and was able to sell directly to consumers, earning uh, $46 million in sales in 2020. Uh, and in one instance, 6 million won in 20 minutes. Um, so, and, and more than 100,000 farmers streamed 2.52 uh, million sessions on Alibaba's group Taobao Live. Um, but they had to rely on logistics supported by the streaming platforms themselves. So this is kind of getting into what Nathan was just touching on, where um, the, the entire infrastructure is um, could, could potentially be changing with uh, the direct connections that we have from our smartphones and from the Internet to the people who are uh, producing our crops and, and uh, likewise uh, back from the people who are producing the crops to directly to the consumers. So we're, we're looking at, um, you know, we're thinking about how um, to design features and software features that drive revenue and cut costs because farming is about selling and selling is about information. So that's where Nathan is talking about blockchain, for example, um, being able to authenticate and trace um, products from their original source, and then being able to show why that product is better. That's the Instagram ability that I'm mentioning there. Um, so in terms of like consumers, they're starting to care a lot more about the provenance and the authenticity of the ingredients and the claims about those ingredients. So um, being able to incorporate that from a CEA perspective allows you to uh, control more of the data that consumers potentially care about and have uh, less complexity um, when you're trying to authenticate and, and trace products throughout the supply chain when those supply chains are, are shorter. Um, but the, let's see, I got a minute left uh, before I wanna get to the, the conclusion slide here. So um, there's, there's the gamification element of this as well. So being able to um, display where these farms are located and display where the produce is um, ending up um, in a way that incentivizes people to, um, to go to a restaurant that has uh, produce that's sourced by a particular farm and express their values that way um, is, is something that, that we're working on and we think is at the forefront of, of where the industry is headed. Um, and it, not just displaying data um, about how consumers, you know, express their opinions and, and the connection between farmers and, and consumers, but also the displaying of the data um, that in a way that makes sense to people who have never farmed before and are getting into farming for the first time. How do they view this data about vapor pressure deficit and all these different um, metrics and data that's being collected and, and then take action in an informed way? Uh, that allows them to to make more money. So we could talk more about this, but um, five minutes, let's wrap it. Let's wrap it up. Yeah. So this is uh, one of the things that's most exciting about uh, to me, right? I can go to Five Guys today and know where what state my French fries is coming from. But what mm -hmm. I really want to know is who grew them, 
Did they use drip irrigation, the most sustainable irrigation uh, that they can use today in order to water them? The more detail I know, uh, and probably the more quality I'm going to see, the more I'd be willing to pay. And if we can get some of this money back to the growers, right, instead of the middlemen, then uh, I, I think that's going to be, you know, really rewarding. The people who are taking the biggest risk uh, in this whole chain. And we got a couple questions here. And uh, the first one is, um, is CEA getting more young people involved in farming? And are you working with, or is the industry working with universities to help fund that education? I know we talked about even schoolyard gardens yesterday and, uh, and how that might uh, pay off. So maybe you could, you, you could talk a little bit about that right now. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of programs that are popping up from like the farm to school program. There's also like career technical education funds that are out there at the high school uh, level, for example, to train um, kids to um, understand what's going on and, and develop applicable skills um, in this field. Um, right now, in terms of like ag programs that are that exist at high schools, they're really focused on like pipe repair or welding, um, and not so much on software and technology. But you know, companies like ours, and and there's a lot of others out there that are that are engaging with the discussions with um, schools at, at the collegiate level, um, but also you know at the high school and even at the elementary school level to start training up kind of the farmers of the future and exposing them to the the new tools that that are going that are emerging in in farming um i think that's good great um there's i'm looking at some of these other questions um right to repair uh, do you want to you want to take the or you can ask the questions in the order that you think is best sorry yeah so uh someone's asking are you familiar with right to repair laws uh conventional farmers are being faced with um and you think there can be a point where there's too much computer integration. And, and I'm not familiar with the term right to repair. Uh, if you are, could you explain that as well? So um, right to repair laws, and, and I'm not super familiar with this, but I, I think you know, it has to do with um, whether a, a private company who, um, who didn't install the system can repair, uh, can repair the system um, or repair a piece of the system. Um, so um, I'm not sure about how that is affecting conventional farmers. Uh, maybe like if you you know had a, a some John Deere product or something, you can only have John Deere you know fix that product. Um, in terms of there being too much uh, computer integration, I think um, the the value here and and where we get around any kind of right to repair laws is there's a big movement toward uh, web three and decentralized uh, decentralization. Um, the most important thing is the decentralization of knowledge. So if we, we were able to put the right knowledge out there, then the consumer or the farmer can make the choice about um, which whether they want to go with this company or another company and maybe one company says you know you this is a standard system anybody can fix it and that's why the farmers or the modern farmers are going to go with that system um, I don't think that there's too much computer integration at this point I think that um, we just don't know how what to do with all of this data so um, it's, it's kind of making sense of the data that is that is the big issue in the space yeah, and then we have another, thank you, that's a, a good answer. Um, we have another question here about how do you see organic farming using controlled environments? Ben, that's you. 
so organic farming is prime for controlled environments. Uh, first, with controlled environments, uh, a, a major possible feasible output that we have for it is efficient breeding. So we're moving away from GMO, which on the definition level of a GMO, it is a lab modified seed uh, or product. Um, so rather than lab modifying something and artificially modifying it, we can take land race breeds and we can harden them in a controlled environment agriculture to then actually propagate them outside again as well. And with that as well, because we are doing controlled environment agriculture, we can alter and control that environment in a way where we do not need to use pesticides, chemicals, or GMO seed for the production of that growth. So really organic farming uh, should be drooling over controlled environment agriculture is the easiest answer for that. Yeah, uh, interesting and, and, and great. Um, so then uh, we have one last question here before we do the conclusion. And this question has to do with uh, a normal farm versus uh, and a tractor breaking on a normal farm versus a computer breaking on a CEA farm. And it's really interesting. Uh, my boss, Eric Olson, is always pushing us to be more creative on um, uh, making sure that we've got the most reliable products because oftentimes our customers are four hours away from a supplier, a four hour drive. So things have to work and they have to be reliable because a four hour drive each way, you know, is, is just not attainable. So, so what about this uh, 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 situation, right? And this question about, does it take more time to fix stuff on a CEA or shorter and how does that affect uh, uh, production? Yeah, so I, I think the answer that I wanna give here is like, it depends on the companies that are involved in designing these systems. So if you have a, a, a kind of a big, the best example that I can give is like a Raspberry Pi, for example, which is just an off-the-shelf computer module. It's really cheap. Um, and a lot of industry, and I know of an example from one of our other engineers was telling me, um, there was the, this, um, I'm not exactly sure what the industry he was in, but it was an industrial operation. And he replaced um, all of his um, industrial operation, like, computer brains with Raspberry Pis. And he put he was able to put four different Raspberry Pis in a line. And if one went out, the other one would just take over. Um, because it's so cheap and, and technology is developing so quickly. And there are companies like Raspberry Pi um, that are putting out products that um, have enough computing power that, that you would need um, and um, are, are relatively cheap and, and inexpensive and easy to replace. Um, I think it's it's very different than uh, if you know you're trying to uh, uh, repair a tractor, for example. Um, a tractor is is really specialized. It's only used you know for farming. Um, a Raspberry Pi is used in all sorts of different fields um, for industrial control or just hobby projects or whatever. So being able to design operations with that in mind of I'm going to use, I'm going to design these facilities and use these parts that are easily replaceable or, um, you know, or cheaper, you know, but serve the same um, purpose, I think is uh, where the industry should be heading. And this is also important for teaching people about how to use the technologies that are in the industry. If it's just a big company like, um, you know, Samsung that is producing um, you know, these these really specialized parts and they're the only ones who do it. It's kind of hard to train 
um, students or, or people who want to come up in the industry to, to use those parts because they're expensive and they only come from one company. Great point. So, uh, and then I, I do have, I uh, want to ask one last question. I, I had this question as well. Uh, can you point to some specific successful CEA examples that, uh, that uh, maybe we know of or uh, would, would read about? Um, I, I have probably a different answer than Ben, but uh, Ben, you go first and then I, I'll go off of that. Uh, sure. Um, I'm going to go with two that are kind of on opposite spectrums, uh, but both very cool. So there's one in Brooklyn called Square Roots. It's actually uh, founded by Kimball Musk, uh, Elon Musk's brother. And those are module uh, CEA units that are being used with shipping containers. So they purchase shipping containers. They are in Brooklyn. They're also in the Midwest as well. Uh, and they uh, have been very successful in CA agriculture. They supply it to some of the top restaurants in uh, New York City and in the New York State, uh, along with local uh, grocery stores and farmers markets. Um, they are carried often through Baldor, one of the largest food distributors on the East Coast. Um, and then most of their labor is uh, younger generation uh, college students who are looking for easy, accessible jobs who did not think that agriculture would be the career they were going to go down until working for Square Roots. And then the other one is called uh, Pasona Urban Farm by Kona Designs. It's in Japan. Uh, it is in the middle of Tokyo. It is actually a recruitment company's office uh, that is also a full multi-tiered uh, CEA. Uh, they grow anywhere from pumpkins to they have a rice paddy field in their lobby. Uh, they grow uh, broccoli, uh, spinach, um, and all the produce that they grow there is used to feed their employees and their employees are also allowed to take it home with them. Wow, great examples, I love that. So, uh, Ethan, you had a couple as well? Um, there is one that, that's in Wyoming, I think it's called Vertical Harvest. I think the reason uh, that, that that one is, is um, a model, I guess, is uh, they employ uh, people with physical or intellectual disabilities uh, who want to work in vertical farming um, this is kind of what I'm saying about the, the transition from, from uh, seasonal kind of unskilled labor to more skilled labor is what are the skills that um, people can attain and, um, and apply effectively. And I think this, uh, this CEA really opens it up to um, being able to hire people that may have more difficulties getting, um, getting jobs in, in uh, other fields because uh, there's a lot of assistance from, you know, computers, machine learning, it's a controlled environment. You're not out in the 100 degree heat in, in the summer um, picking, you know, grapes or whatever. Um, so there, there's opportunities there to, to bring in new people. I think that that is a model that uh, could be looked up to. But at this, what I was gonna say uh, that's different than Ben is, you know, I think that the right models are still emerging. And, you know, the Aero Farms SPAC went through for, for different, for, for reasons that we can speculate on, right? But um, it may not be, uh, the, the right solution may not be uh, uh, out there yet because the 
traditional farming isn't uh, as involved as uh, they should be to take the industry to the to the next level. It's it's kind of like the Silicon Valley crew coming in and putting a bunch of tech into this stuff, and then not understanding the unit economics or um, you know what it takes to actually run a farm. Like wastewater is a big thing if you look up some of uh, some of the farms or some of the CEA operations or projects that have had issues with that. Um, I think farmers right away would know all the issues with water and that they would plan a different facility, but um, we, we haven't so much seen that yet. So hopefully we see it very soon here. I think the time is right. Probably within the next you know couple of years, we'll see um, larger farm, you know, bigger farming, traditional farming operations coming into the CEA picture and designing very different facilities. Yeah, great examples. Thank you. So uh, final thoughts here, Ethan? Yeah, this is just a wrap up. It's it's mainly for Ben. Um, this is that we kind of did the summary with with these questions. Um, you know, I don't know, Ben. You want to just run through it real quick? Uh, yeah. Uh, so very quick. You know, my chef speedy talk. Um, so with CEAs, we see a feasible route towards holistic, returning to holistic practices, and I think that's something that you know. Ethan was mentioning very well with sort of the uh, the evolution of CEAs and the examples out there right now. Uh, the huge issue that we have is the narrative behind agriculture and what is traditional holistic agriculture versus what is commercial agriculture, and how do we merge those two in these modern times where we have such high demand for sustenance. Um, and so I think CEAs offer a feasible route towards returning to holistic traditional farming practices on a commercial scale. Um, the right tech is out there. And now it's really, as we we're just saying before, it's about finding and understanding the applications with the tech that exists now. Uh, like I said at the very beginning, you know, originally with a lot of these farming and landscaping agricultural methodologies, it was very science fiction leading into the 2000s. Uh, now, with the massive developments in tech in the past 20 years, this is becoming feasible. We just need to be open-minded enough to see how to apply that tech. Uh, the next generation of CEA uses intelligent, not smart hardware. Uh, and that is a good one that sort of responds to the equipment issue of it. Uh, smart hardware is something that is just connected to the internet, pretty much. Uh, intelligent, is, we're talking about artificial intelligence, we're talking about learning algorithms, uh, adaptive systems, which is an advanced form of mathematics that allows the formula to adjust and adapt as it gets more variables. Uh, this is going to create endless efficiencies that is a tool to the farmer. It's not making the farmer give up control of it, it's optimizing the farmer's own personal understanding of their systems um, and it will help them prevent and lower risk in their growth operations. Uh, the key to CA's future is converting knowledge data logic. Um, we are a global market for in all truth and reality now. Uh, it is a very different world in our culture. We are not just microclimates, we are a macroclimate made up of microclimates. Um, and there is a whole new language that needs to be written for us to understand the regulation, the standards to be set for our culture that exists today, and how we can be open sourced and truthful about that. So CEA, especially with the use of blockchain and with data collection, offers a road forward to create a universal language for the future of agriculture.
Yeah, see, I told you these guys were bright. Um, definitely a lot of really interesting information to supply us. Uh, great job today, guys. What I really want to do is have you back in a month or two and uh, even do a deeper dive into some of the specifics that you covered. I think that uh, would be uh, really fascinating and, and really helpful to everybody. But uh, I got to tell you, you guys were fascinating and, and great. And thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today. I want to say to all our viewers, thank you for checking in today. Uh, you got a wealth of knowledge here uh, from Ben and Nathan and Ethan today. Uh, and you can see all our trainings, you know, at the janesusa.com forward slash trainings page. Over 150 uh, irrigation trainings exist there today. You can listen to this webinar as well as all the others uh, wherever you listen to your favorite uh, podcasts, right? We convert these all to podcasts. And I just love it that people are driving around during their workday listening and educating themselves and, um, you know, being better. And that's, uh, that, that, that's really great. So anyway, thanks, everybody. I hope you guys have a great weekend. And uh, we'll see you here uh, next week uh, for a couple more um, uh, trainings. So thanks again, you guys. All right. Thanks. See you. Thank you.